Hello world and welcome to Podcast in A Minor, where I bring you the weird little songs I write and then give you the stories behind them. Weird stories, creepy stories, funny stories, whatever the world gives us in all its glorious mystery. And now for today's opening song. How's he holding up to shreds, you say? You broke your favorite coffee cup to shreds, you say? You tore up my letter to shreds, you say? I hope you're feeling better to shreds, you say? Welcome to Podcast in A Minor. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and an artist, and I'm in one of my moods. You just heard To Shreds You Say on that silver-sparkled Daisy Rock rock candy electric guitar played through one of those little grapefruit-sized honeytone amps. I forgot I had that little amp, as well as a tiny Dan Electro one with a mean gain feature. These will be great for more audible singing with electric guitar. When I got those amps, one of which came free with some gear order that showed up, I wasn't doing this, so it took me a while to connect the dots. There's not a ton of story linked to this song. The basic idea just sort of rolled in. I was thinking of Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth and the sleepy, droning vocals of the 90s, which I found sort of touching at the time, whether they'd resulted from disillusionment, pill hazes, or whatever the case. Mood. I'd wanted to use the phrase to shreds you say in a song and it became the sort of song where you can put in any old phrase that comes to mind and fits your current scene stream of consciousness style. The words could change at any moment to fit your mood and if you're a stage type person you could improvise new verses whenever you want. The title and recurring phrase to shreds you say comes directly from the line the professor on Futurama delivered twice in a season one episode. I'll give a few details on that later. But first, let us briefly touch on the subject of songs that emerge from lines spoken in old television shows. Put a nickel in it, will you, Helen? You might recall that from episode 32, Soul Gong. Three more such songs are in various stages of progress now. The first is A Little Bent Upstairs. Secondly, Everything I Touch Turns to Graveyards. And third, The Cry of the World. I would have forgotten about The Cry of the World, just as I had forgotten all about To Shreds, you say. But I was just flipping through my previous journal, looking for a list of songs I'd written down for future podcast episodes, and I found one of those spreads where I divide the pages in two so that I can work on two new songs at once. Left column, let's die beautifully. 
Right column to shreds, you say. Across the top of the page, the quotation from a child in an episode of Thriller, 1962. I woke up and I got lonesome and I need someone. At which her mother swooped her up in her arms and said, Oh, the cry of the world. Like, who doesn't feel that way, you know? Maybe that was a phrase everyone said all the time in 1962, but it hit me in the gut. That kid needs a lullaby, right? Anyway, stay tuned for those numbers aforementioned. Next point, syrup versus syrup. Which one's right? Just kidding. Say it however you say it. According to wordgenius.com, those in the Northeast Corridor of the United States say syrup, and the rest of us say syrup. Syrup always sounded othery to me. It came from people in the television commercials or kids who took out-of-state vacations and called their grandparents Mimi and Peepaw. Perfectly legitimate, but a little exotic to my ears. From here, let's just collect some fun facts and little thoughts for several lines in the opening song, To Shreds You Say. How's he holding up? To Shreds You Say. This is a variation on lines from I, Roommate, Episode 3 in Season 1 of Futurama. The episode first aired in April of 1999, and in it, Philip J. Fry, the pizza delivery boy who accidentally got frozen for a thousand years on New Year's Eve and woke up the day before the New Year 3000, is caught living in his workplace, the Planet Express office. But he is a mess and a nuisance and is told to go find an apartment. So he moves in with his new friend Bender, but Bender is a robot and sleeps standing up and his tiny broom closet-sized apartment is too cramped for Fry. They go apartment hunting together, visiting an underwater dwelling, a place that looks like the M.C. Escher painting House of Stairs, as well as others that just don't feel right. Then the professor receives a phone call, and we hear only his side of the conversation. Oh, how awful. Did he at least die painlessly? To shreds, you say. Well, how's his wife holding up? To shreds, you say. Very well which naturally results in an available apartment for Bender and Fry, and the place seems ideal. But it turns out that the antenna on Bender's head interferes with the television signal, so Bender is forced to move out and becomes depressed and self-destructive, neglecting his alcohol consumption, which fuels his circuits. In the end, Fry and Bender decide their friendship is the main thing and return to the cramped little robot closet apartment. And it turns out that what Bender thinks of as the closet of the apartment is actually an entire human-sized apartment, and Fry moves into that. Next. You tore up my letter, to shreds you say. I hope you're feeling better, to shreds you say. Is the catharsis that comes with tearing up a letter in anger as complete in the high-tech scenario of deleting an email or text thread or hitting block on a phone number or social media account? No. Tearing is a loud act of mild violence on an inanimate object, a symbolic physical act of externalizing strong emotion through the ringing muscles. So no, sorry, it's not. You don't live in Europe. I lived in Europe twice, briefly. Eastern Europe. Keste, Hungary, one summer. Timisoara, Romania, one winter. Both times in the 90s. Actually, I was in Romania when we flipped over into the year 2000. It was a great place to be in the fearful climate of Y2K, freaking everything out and short-circuiting the planet. In Romania, they still use scales with counterweights in the markets, so it was a good place to be. We're out of maple syrup. Pronunciation settled. You can follow the link in the show notes to the wordgenius.com article, 14 words you'll say differently depending on where you are in the U.S., it looks at words like pecan, 
crayon, pajamas, and bagel, where they claim that, quote, for some reason, Midwesterners say boggle. Oh, do we, unnamed author of the article. I've only ever heard anything close to that in the television series community when Britta said bagel and everyone laughed. Maybe you were just eavesdropping on a discussion of boggle, the word game. Your necklace came unclasped. I think immediately of my little ghost necklace designed by Nicholas Cave. That would be tragic. In consequence, I only wear it in the house when doing live streams or filming songs. I'm only half living because of fear. Fear channeled into a line of the opening song. But don't forget that terrifying moment in season one of The X-Files, an episode titled Squeeze. Mulder and Scully are investigating the apartment of a man they suspect of murdering and feeding on the victim's livers every 30 years because of a mutation that allows him to age slowly and hibernate as long as he gets his quota of livers. The place is dark. Visibility is poor. At one point, Scully says she's hung up on something, but, oh, there, it's okay now. She continues on her way, and out of the darkness, we see the murderer with Scully's necklace dangling from his hand. This is especially bad news, as the killer is known to take souvenirs from his victims, or prospective victims in this case. The angel cake collapsed! From the book, Finding Betty Crocker, by Susan Marks. Actually, I can't find the page I'm looking for. I first saw this book in the Columbia Public Library, where I worked just before having my baby, and then again a few years after. At some point, I checked out Finding Betty Crocker, the hardback copy, and read it through a couple of times during a couple of winters. Throughout the 20th century, tons of people wrote letters to Betty Crocker as if she were a real person, though she never was. She was a concocted personality, a marketing scheme, which we'll get into in a moment. But I vividly remember a story about a woman who, in the 1980s or so, had found a 30-year-old Betty Crocker angel food cake mix in the family fallout shelter and wondered if it was okay to go ahead and bake it up. Betty replied that as long as the cake mix was sealed and dry, it should be perfectly safe. And probably the lady wrote back to say that the cake turned out as light and fluffy as ever you like. That sounds right. I certainly haven't reread every word of the book in this impromptu reunion with Finding Betty Crocker, so it's possible I just missed it. But also, my copy is a paperback, and so maybe it's been revised and abridged since the first time I read it. The book tells the story of Betty Crocker, a fictional character concocted to promote flour. She's been helping women bake successfully for decades, starting as a cover girl for Washburn Flour in 1921. Marketing gimmick or not, her task was an important one because American kitchens were transitioning from wood-burning ovens to modern electric ones. Baking techniques would have to adjust, cake pans and baking pans would have to be standardized, and Betty helped by providing recipe booklets and soon after sharing recipes over the radio in daily talks that women treasured. Betty, or whoever she was, spoke kind encouragement and gave out not just recipes but household advice and the letters flooded in. Nowadays, at least in America, we all know Betty Crocker as the cake mix lady. She's got the big red spoon on her boxes of cake mix, and she does muffin mix and things like that. I remember my mom telling me once that cake mix companies were able to make just add water cake mixes, but people didn't like them because they wanted to feel more involved, more like they were doing something homemade. So to this day, most cake mixes require adding a few eggs and some oil in addition to the water. And this is confirmed in the book, Finding Betty Crocker. 
quote, the very marketable premise behind cake mixes was, and still is, the ability to have a fresh, quote, homemade cake with very little time and effort. But the market was slow to mature. Puzzled, marketers reiterated the message that homemakers need only drop this scientific marvel into a bowl, add water, mix, and bake. The problem, according to psychologists, was eggs. Dr. Ernest Dichter believed that powdered eggs often used in cake mixes, should be left out so women could add a few fresh eggs into the batter, giving them a sense of creative contribution. He believed, too, that baking was an act of love on the woman's part. A cake mix that only needed water only cheapened that love. Mom was right. Another cake mix controversy involved the name Devil's Food Cake. The opposite of Angel Food Cake, of course. People wrote in to Betty pleading for a less evil cake name, but the General Mills Company would not budge, pointing out that the name Devil's Food Cake had been around before Betty Crocker had and was, quote, known as a so-good-it-must-be-a-sin kind of cake, which in most parts of the country could only be good for sales, right? Finding Betty Crocker, to me, is an engrossing book, an enthralling book. One chapter discusses Betty's image and how it was regularly updated to hang with the changing times. When women began to prioritize their careers, they defended Betty Crocker as an empowering figure, allowing them to bake with convenience amid their busy schedules. The book includes recipes through the decades and letters from home bakers telling the fictional Betty how much her radio show meant to them, thanking her for her help, and asking whether the miracle cake could be made in other flavors besides orange and lemon, as one woman's husband loved any kind of cake, as long as it was chocolate. Still, my favorite is the letter from the home bomb shelter about the decades-old angel cake mix, which I'm almost sure I did not dream. Also compelling, the slip-slide custard pie, and here's the intro to that recipe. Custard pie is known as nervous, or quaking pie, in New England because it quivers and shakes. We used to call it soggy crust pie, too, until a unique slip-slide trick was devised. Here's how to do it! So... To avoid the scourge of a soggy pie crust under your custard pie, here is your method. You bake the pie crust alone in one pan. You bake the custard alone in a second separate pan. Then guess what? You get the freaky, stressful task of dislodging your lukewarm custard. Wait, wait, here are the anxiety-inducing instructions delivered in a smug and misleadingly calm tone. When lukewarm, loosen the custard from pan with knife or spatula. Shake gently to loosen completely. Slip custard into cooled, baked pie shell. Let cool completely before serving. But don't let the custard crack or split, girl, because that would make you a less-than-perfect housewife. Oh, shit. Sorry, I shouldn't have. That was definitely imperfect of me. That revolutionary and anguish-riddled recipe appears in Betty's Big Red Cookbook, a first edition of which my sister gave me a long time ago when I was getting way into old cookbooks. I've never attempted the slip-slide custard pie. No way, man. There are other less trying methods. Bake the pie crust first. Weigh it down with dry beans on foil or a pie chain or pie weights. These are actual kitchen products, if you didn't know. Then cook the custard on the stovetop and pour it into the crust. If the bottom crust is soggy, I haven't noticed because it's not even the best part of the pie. Pumpkin pie is custard pie. And if the crust is soggy, I haven't noticed because it's not even the best 
part of the pie seriously, the worries people invent. Still, the best fix I've ever seen for solving the soggy bottom crust came from the one and only Martha Stewart. Get this. Bake the pie crust ahead of time, empty on its own. Weighted to avoid bubbles and rising because the steam gets going as the fat melts. Anyway, it's pie nerd. Alternatively, make a cookie crust. Buzz some vanilla wafers in the food processor. Add a little melted butter and powdered sugar. Press it into the pie pan using the bottom of a dry measuring cup. And then toast it in the oven for about 15 minutes. Once the crust is cooled, melt some chocolate, baby. What happens when melted chocolate cools? It becomes magic shell, a delicious barrier between the crust and the custard. What on earth? Martha, you've done it again. On that note, I hope you enjoyed Pi Day, March 14th. That's 3-14, an homage to that math number involving circles and stuff. A much-needed late winter holiday for people who don't care that much about sports. And to Betty's revolutionary slip-slide custard pie that you've never heard of because people took one look and said not even close, it does get a reference in my banana cream pie sonnet. Like to hear it, here it goes. Kitchen-born ambrosia, slurry stirring, soul and pot heaped full to fill the pie. In your custard clouds I drowning die. Anxious plot and diner dream recurring, carousel hypnosis blurring, blurring. Pie to spare won't bear to be put by. No one loves you here, sir, only I. Loving hands devout your form demurring. One path to make it best, your cashmere filling, not the slip-slide two-pan fabled fashioned, vanilla wafer crust and butter pressed, toasted lonely, empty, sweet, pain-killing, unheated for a sainted conjured ration, sublime, you heal my vacant bitterness. Find that one in Electrified Corset, a book of poetry now available on Amazon. Link in show notes. Beyond that, who loves coleslaw? Who digs purple cabbage? The Book of Halloween by Ruth Edna Kelly tells of an old Scottish custom of young people walking blindfolded to the cabbage garden where they pulled the first stalk they came to and carried it home where they removed their blindfolds. The size and shape of the cabbage stalk was supposed to foretell the appearance of the future husband or wife. A lot of Halloween fortune telling of olden days seems to revolve around cabbage it seems. Purple cabbage is the color of my heart song or at least of my harp. It's a harpsicle harp. They come in loads of bright colors. Once, a very limited edition glittery black, and another time, a bright holographic blue. And there's to shreds, you say, now and forever a song, pulled from a hilarious line in a television show. That moment in Futurama has made me laugh and laugh, always catching me off guard until pretty recently, and now I shush everyone in the room in order to experience it the more fully. The professor is a delightful character, pushing 150 years old, because it's a thousand years in the future, so you can live that long. And his aging is a comedy goldmine on that show. And yet he is Fry's nephew, his great-great-however-many-greats-nephew, which also leads to hilarity in another episode, when the gang discovers the horrible, disgusting secret behind their favorite addictive soft drink, and the professor wants to report it to the authorities, but Fry is too addicted to the drink, called Slurm, to see it taken away. So when the professor tells authorities that Slurm comes from a, quote, colossal worm hiney, Fry plays up the angle that maybe the old man might be nuts, saying, calm down, grandpa, or something like that. Professor replies, I'm not your grandpa, you're my uncle, from the year 2000, 
which of course deflates all kinds of credibility if you're thinking with a year 2000 brain. In the future, of course, there's a whole piece of the population that woke up after being frozen for several centuries, but ignoring that creates a very worthwhile joke moment. Fun fact, there is another song called To Shreds You Say by Iron Sheik. To Shreds, comma, you say, question mark, released in 2017. And to me, this type of thing, sharing a song title over a funny line from a primetime television cartoon, 1999, is like some kind of cosmic handshake, right? It's like why they tell you on missionary trips not to start romantic relationships with others from your own country, and why I almost did in Romania, because we could have entire conversations around different strokes episodes and make jokes like, I almost just said Nuapte McBuna to that very serious Romanian McDonald's employee who was emptying the trash can with a level of seriousness to which I am not accustomed. Quick unpacking of that joke, Nuapte Buna is Romanian for good night. And he added the McDonald's Mick in the middle. Nuapte McBuna. Good one, Eric. A better example, since we're talking music, might be when the Bangles covered Hazy Shade of Winter by Simon and Garfunkel and released it in 1987. I knew a few Simon and Garfunkel songs because my dad would sing them, but usually he'd sing I'd Rather Be a Hammer Than a Nail or The Boxer, both of which we thought he was making up. All those la lies. Anyway, the Bangles version of Hazy Shade of Winter was the first version I ever heard, and my dad was enchanted with it, because Simon and Garfunkel had been probably saving music for him in, a, in very hard times, as the loss of his father just days before his 14th birthday unfolded into further difficulties that I never knew about until just a couple of years ago. Anyway, along came these fabulous rock chicks and sort of cosmically grabbed him by the hand in profound human understanding through deep gratitude to the same band. That's how it struck me. So hats off to you, Iron Chic artists of To Shreds, you say? Look at us, man. Killing it as usual. And that should do it. Hope you're having a wonderful week. To Shreds, you say. See you next time. Masta, masta, the Encyclopedia Neurotica. It's my rule in the play.